0: Before we get to today's show, I'd like to hear from you. This show is nothing without our listeners. and We want to make sure we provide you with what you're looking for. Our mailbox is open to all suggestions. So if you have a topic you want to learn about, or a guest you want to hear from, let us know by sending us an email to health and Wellness at gmail.com. That's c h a g a h e a l t h n. W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S at gmail.com Now, enjoy the episode. As the world gets louder and louder, the lessons of our natural world become harder and harder to hear, but they are still available to those who know where to listen. I'm Gerry Olette, and I was honoured to serve as Ontario's Minister of Natural Resources. However, my journey into the woods didn't come from politics. Rather, it came from my time in the bush and a mushroom. In 2015, I was introduced to the birch-hungry fungus known as chaga, a tree conch, with centuries of medicinal applications used by Indigenous peoples all over the globe. After nearly a decade of harvest, use, testimonials, and research, my skepticism has faded to obsession, and I now spend my life dedicated to improving the lives of others through natural means. But that's not what the show's about. My pursuit of this strange mushroom and my passion for the outdoors has brought me to the places and around the people that are shaped by our natural world. On Outdoor Journal Radio's Under the Canopy podcast, I'm going to take you along with me to see the places, meet the people that will help you find your outdoor passion and help you live a life close to nature and under the canopy. Today, that person is Jack Summers from Radio World. On this week's show, we're going to learn all about metal detectors, what sets them off, what items are most commonly found, and how you can get into the hobby. So join me today for another great episode and hopefully we can inspire a few more people to live their lives under the canopy. Welcome to the show, Jack. How's it going?
1: Doing great, Jerry. Nice to talk to you today.
0: It's always a pleasure. Hey, tell us about your your, your trips abroad. You, you just got back from Winterpeg and a number of other places. What were you doing in Winterpeg?
1: Well, I was Dealing with metal detectors, naturally, that's that's kind of what I do. And you know, metal detectors come in all shapes and sizes. And one of the areas that I am an expert in is security metal detectors. And uh, I take care of all of the NHL teams in Canada for their walkthrough metal detectors. So this week was Winnipeg. We breathed in. We did a little bit of repairs, a little bit of reprogramming, and lots of training. And lo and behold, everything was successful. And uh, we're just trying to make Patron screening, the patron ex- screening experience much easier and better for everybody.
0: Oh yeah, so and I've got uh, two sisters that live in Manitoba, so we get uh, through that way once in a while, and and been to Winnipeg a number of times. And depending on the time of year, it can be cold. I think it's what is it minus forty out there today? Something something like yeah,
1: that. It was windy and minus twenty five pretty much for all of the last week.
0: Oh yeah. So when you do these these for the NHL teams and things like that, these metal detectors that that people walk through, like the stuff at the airports and things like that, do you do the the outdoor winter games for the NHL hockey stuff?
1: Well, certainly, if it takes place on Canadian soil, we are involved. Uh, recently, we had the outdoor game in Edmonton, uh, Calgary, and Edmonton at Commonwealth Stadium.
2: Right. You were
1: 65,000 people there, and Mm -hmm. my team from Ontario and from Calgary joined together and put up 102 walkthroughs for for that event. Yeah, it was pretty exciting.
0: So just 102, that sounds like a lot to me, but that just, especially on an outdoor game, when you get that many people. Now, I've been to the Commonwealth Stadium and watched the, uh, at that time, it was the Eskimos, the Edmonton Eskimos and the Calgary Stampeters play, and it's quite the uh, facility there, isn't it?
1: It's actually massive, and, and it was filled to capacity. Um, the the venue was rocking. I, I can't uh, you know explain it any other way. It was absolutely vibrant, rocking, happy crowd. It was uh, cold, it wasn't crazy cold. You know we've done that, uh, events in Edmonton and um, sorry, not Edmonton, but Ottawa. Right And Regina, that were, you know, minus 30 at puck drop, and that's, that's pretty crazy. But this wasn't so bad. Maybe minus 8, minus 10, you know, on October 27th was was okay.
0: So, in, and when you use these outdoor metal detector well, these metal detectors there, they, they work in those minus temperatures no problem at all?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's what they're built for.
0: Oh, okay. So how do they essentially, you know, what method do they operate or how do they, when those walkthrough ones, how do they work actually?
1: Well, actually, whether it be walkthrough or be a you know a hobby or sport metal detector, it, it really is basically the same technology, packaged many many different ways, and and it its sides or its walls are filled with uh, coiled antennas mm-hmm. that create a magnetic field, and the magnetic magnetic field is you know uh, makes a you know elliptical shape around the metal detector, and anything that passes through that. Med- a metal detector right. will have a response if, if it's metal and it's measuring that response and analyzing it versus uh, size of the metals, mm-hmm. the hardness of metals, compositions of metals that would provide a return. So larger objects, large metal objects would provide a return that would need to be investigated by a security officer Right in other environments. Um, whether that be a loss prevention environment, it would be much more sensitive looking for smaller things,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, the same as prisons or, or other types of secured environments.
0: Right. So the, with all the um, the metal hips and, and knees and shoulders and all that, I imagine that has a big impact on, on those people going through. Does it not? Or how does that it work? Really,
1: de- It really depends on the era of those replacements. Um, you know, certainly we have the ability to discriminate against some metals, and the metals that are used in that typically do not set off metal detectors.
0: Oh, they don't? Oh, really? No. So people at the airports and things like that, same thing. They, uh, You know, a shoulder, a new shoulder that just got done, or uh, people know that uh, my my brother-in-law with his knee, and et cetera, et cetera, same thing with them. Uh, it wouldn't set off a metal detector.
1: It depends whether it's the joint or the pins, and it depends on whether they're going through a walkthrough metal detector, right? Or if it's the millimeter wave, it will it will show up as a different mass, and that's when they they would do a pat down, if, uh, you know, on detection at an airport, which certainly would be a little bit more sensitive of a setting than it would be at a hockey game or a basketball game or something like that. Right? right.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. And not only that, but uh, you do other areas as well. I think. What you're uh, not only the NHL hockey, but what other kind of specialty services do you apply with those metal well, detectors?
1: Well, of course, the security detectors go from soup to nuts, uh, and everybody can really understand that because they, they see those environments. But the hobby detectors is, is fascinating, mm-hmm. whether it be people looking for coin and treasure or prospecting for gold or scuba diving, there are metal detectors for each and every application from entry-level kids detectors up to, uh, you know, gold prospecting detectors, uh, you know, in excess of $10,000. And uh, that whole world on its own is fascinating.
0: So, yeah, so tell us a bit about that um, handheld metal detector where, you know, you see, I see people in the parks and the beaches and stuff like that all walking with metal detectors with earphones on and headphones on, I should say. And they're walking through and kind of just give us an idea. Like you you just mentioned, I imagine the the high end would be the $10,000 unit. However, I imagine there are other ones as well. What's what's an entry level one and what do you kind of find with an entry level one and where can you use them?
1: Sure. Well, you know the whole deal with treasure hunting has is you know it's not new. It's it's um, it's been around forever and ever and ever, and uh, I think that people have been seeking treasure in many different ways um, for many 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 years, many years. And of course, uh, with the onset of technology, actually 60 years ago this year, April 1st. A gentleman by the name of Charles Garrett invented the first metal detector, um, commercially made, and and he was a, a treasure hunter, a very famous treasure hunter and gold prospector himself, mm-hmm. um, and uh, built the legacy company that that you know survives today. Um, there are uh, people out there that do it for recreation and for sport and, and to find stuff, and very few get rich, but certainly it's a great hobby. So, uh, beach detecting, we always see a typical stereotype, that old guy walking down the beach with a metal detector and he never seems to find anything. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, Jerry, they don't tell everybody what they find because all of a sudden everybody says, oh yeah, I lost that, right? So, these people are finding gold rings, watches, expensive sunglasses, all the types of things that, that people use. Uh, or where out in the water. And, you know, it's a great example. You know, you go from the uh, 10 feet off the beach into the water, Mm -hmm. and whether you're jumping around or throwing a football or jumping on a raft or just going for a swim, Mm -hmm. of course your body shrinks and things fall off. Right. And typically, uh, once it's gone, it's very difficult to trace without, you know, a tool like a metal detector.
0: Well, I have to tell you, my metal detector story goes back to probably... Oh, that'd be the late 80s or early 90s, and I was up at a friend's place, Tudor Howard Davies, bless his soul, and we were out walking he had 10 acres up north of Ottawa, uh, up near Elmont, Ontario, and I had uh, lost quite a bit of weight, which I need to do again, but uh, that's another story. And, in, and anyways, we we're walking through, and in the 10 acres, and it was in February, and the snow was fairly deep. And I looked down and my wedding ring's gone. And I can't believe it. And I am in a panic now. So I was like, I don't know what to do. I had to head back. It was a Sunday. I had to get back to work. So I rented a metal detector from a local Stans Rental and went back the following weekend. And fortunately, it hadn't snowed. And I threw this 10-acre bush where we were walking and we were going. And I went through the same, I could find, follow my route, and lo and behold, I found that ring. I That's was awesome. I was totally shocked. I couldn't believe it. Now, I imagine that that technology has changed quite a bit since the late 80s, early 90s to now, has it not?
1: Of course it has. Absolutely. It, it's changed dramatically. But, you know, the all of the great things about that story is that when you're out in the rural areas, these are areas that are not full of iron and trash for the most part. You know, uh, of course, there are litters and there, there, there is, you know, there's remnants of old buildings and stuff. But you were able to find that quite easily, remarkably, because you probably have very few targets on, on that metal detector. And, uh, you know, your story is, is way more common that, than you would imagine. And mm. people lose wedding rings and car keys and cell phones and all kinds of things in the, in the snow. Uh, in the water and such, but you know, speaking to the technology of that, years ago they were single frequency detectors, right. And different frequencies pres- provide different responses in that electromagnetic field.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, you know, over time and through engineering and development, they are were able to understand that different frequencies would be better for different different finds, um, where you wanted a uh, a larger coil with a lower frequency could go deeper or, or shallower or a smaller coil with a higher frequency would be better for gold prospecting, et cetera.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think over the last five or six years, they have developed a multi-frequency or simultaneous multi-frequency detectors that throw a whole bunch of signals out at the same time at various frequencies, therefore getting much more, responses that right. they can interpolate or interpret for, for that screen. And I'll put it to, uh, uh, to a little bit more uh, visual um, where many of the listeners here would understand the new live scope systems or the multi-frequency transducers used on fish finders that you can see actually things live nowadays and moving. Right. It's no different than the metal detecting world. It's similar technology technology. Packaged up, you know, in a, for a completely different purpose.
0: Yeah. So, I, I and I recall when I was walking through, that metal detector was going off constantly with, with making all the different noises, and it was hard to distinguish. Like, okay, what's in this area? And I check and check and check, and nothing in that area. And then I do recall when finding the ring that it was a it was a different sound that came over the, over the metal a detector,
1: a high pitched sound. I'm sure of it.
0: Yep. And it was certainly different than than the other ones. But so essentially, Jack, when you're dealing with this, um, the various detectors will to tell you the different types of metal. I'm assuming
1: there will be indicators where there be there will be either visual or audio indicators. Okay, and every different type of metal would have a different VDI number, a different number or a different sound. Okay, in a little bit of time, a little bit of training, a little bit of uh, Watching YouTube videos, uh, lots of practice, and you're able to discern one from the other. Um, There is uh, certainly nowadays ground balancing that takes out some of the interferences. There are thresholds that are adjustable. There are iron discrimination features that avoid junk metals, Mm -hmm. looking for more pure metals. Um, All kinds of neat features built into them nowadays to, to, to really to be able to help the detectorist discern uh, good from bad and maybe not digging junk all day long.
0: Yeah, I know uh, up at my uncle's camp, one of his his, um, relatives that had a a trailer up there at the camp, they had a metal detector. And this old site that he owns outside of, uh, it's basically outside of Sault Ste. Marie Mountain, Ontario, Um, it was an old mill site where they were doing a lot of milling. And the, the one guy had the metal detector and he found like 50 different axe heads all on this site constantly. And it was just amazing to see that there were that many on the old mill site that was there. So it can actually distinguish like a, a vein of metal, say, um, if you're walking through, through uh, the bush that, that, or it can distinguish whether it's an, it's an axe head sort of thing. Can it get that specific?
1: It it, it wouldn't tell you that it's an axe head. It would tell you that there is metal there and and basically the compositions of that metal. And then, of course, you'd use your tools to to uncover that. And, you know, axe heads have been around this country for a long, long, long time, long before, um, you know, Mm -hmm. all through the indigenous era, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, axe heads are found all the time. and, And they're pretty, pretty marvelous
0: yeah yeah well this was an old um mill site that uh his my uncle's father had purchased um where they they had a mill there a milling yard and they were doing all the logging and all that that's where all these axe heads came from, so it's very different so what are the different like what's a basic entry level kind of metal detector and how does it work and what are you looking at basically in a say a cost uh, to to get into it just to to see if it's something you're interested in
1: well there are for the lack of a better description, something that I would call an entry level toy right that, that you could buy for <laughs> sub $200. And if you buy the right one, right. Or, you know there is a brand called NocTA detectors that put out amazing kids and entry level detectors that are fully waterproof to uh, you know eight feet. and, and for that, these are basically turn-on and go metal detectors. Okay, um, that we're not worried about our kids uh, dropping in a puddle or you know going you know knee deep in the water and dropping in the water and then having your money uh, gone. Uh, basic metal detectors that that you know will detect all metals, no discrimination, none none of the fancy stuff. But good, comfortable detector uh, with a rechargeable battery or or takes triple A batteries that it really will give them their growing years of service. We also recommend these, uh, you know, for, for people that, you know, just, you know, want to give it a go or whatever for a couple hundred bucks, you can't go wrong. Right. Um, you know, and then we start into, you know, much better metal detectors for, for under $400. Uh, you're getting, uh, you know, completely IP68 waterproof detectors, simultaneous multi-frequency you know, search modes like park mode, field mode, beach mode, where where there are settings that are preset for those conditions, keeping in mind, you know, what what you would encounter in that, you know, from years and years of engineering and, and, and use. Right, so Bluetooth enabled, headset capable, uh, expandable, carbon fiber shafts, you know, so that's things un- like that.
0: That's under four hundred dollars you said.
1: Yeah, and then and, we could jump up into the eight hundred dollar range so and get a
0: hang hang on a sec. what's the difference between say you mentioned a field mode and a park mode and a beach mode? How do they differ and how does it what difference does it make with the metal detector? Maybe you can just explain that a bit.
1: It's the same detector with different applications. Okay. So they would so engineers and, and users user input would have said, you know, this discrimination, discriminating against the mineralized soil uh, or uh, would be better for beaches, or discriminating against iron would be better for park mode, or discriminating against aluminum pop tabs would be better in this mode, or discriminating against, you know, that would be better in, in a beach mode. So each of those environments, okay. it'd be like, hey, I'm going to the field today, Maybe I, sh- and I know there are ticks in the field, so maybe I should wear my high boots. Or right. I'm going to the beach today, you wouldn't pick up the same set of boots, you'd go into sandals. So it's no different, but it's the same detector where the programming that it's uh, you're going to start with mm-hmm. um, is predetermined for or optimized for that application.
2: Okay. Hmm.
0: So yeah, I I wouldn't have thought that they could you know discriminate against uh, pop tabs and things like that, aluminum pop tabs that you might find everywhere. And but it certainly makes sense that they have that ability to to eliminate those wasteful times, I guess you'd call it.
1: Absolutely, and in in a a situation that you are looking for your wedding ring, let's say, and that's all you care about today, that wedding ring, they're actually adjustable that you could wave another piece of gold over it fine-tune it to a point that it ignores everything except for that gold tone right and when you said you were hearing all kinds of noises all over the place until you heard that that right true tone of your ring right it would actually it would actually really uh, in a heavier junkier area help you with that response much faster as well
0: mm. so how much for example how much gold would there need to be for it to be able to uh, identify gold in an area. Obviously, a ring is one size, but how little of gold would there be in order to so, be able to set it off?
1: Yeah, I get it. It really depends on what your application is. So a gold prospecting detector, you know, starting at $1,000 and going up to 10 using the correct um, coil mm-hmm. and the correct frequency, right. you're able to detect sub- rice grain sizes of gold. Oh. Hmm. And of course, that's what we find here. And if we think about the Klondike, you know, up in, uh, you know, northwest Canada, yep. we're not finding big gold chunks like they find in Australia. Mm-hmm. We're finding little sub-grain pieces. And, and then, of course, we we um, we pan our te- that type of gold, flour gold, I think they call it, and we pan it, so it's detecting sub-grain, sub-rice-grain sizes of gold.
0: Hmm. And how deep would it be able to, like the you mentioned for a gold one, you're looking at about a $1,000 entry level. So for a yep. $1,000 entry level one, how deep in the ground would it be able to detect uh, these these grain size pieces of gold?
1: This is like the age-old question. How deep will it detect? And everybody asks that. And, and A, it depends on the detector. It okay. depends on the frequency. Depends on the soil condition. Um, it depends on the size of the target. So, so as a sub grain or a rice grain sized piece, we dug out of the Arizona desert. I think in 2018, at about 18 inches. Okay. Um, and as it goes bigger, it, it, of course, you can go deeper. But but you know, I mean, if you could detect a Volkswagen at seven feet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yep. because of the size of the target is basically right. what I'm saying. So the bigger the target, the easier it is to detect, the, the deeper it will go. But, you know, it's not unheard of that they're, we're finding things at two and three and four feet. Okay. Hmm. Especially when you're talking about Australian goldfield.
0: Yeah, well, it seems to be catching on. I know that, now. I don't know if you've, well, I would imagine you've seen it, but actually the the Duck Dynasty crowd actually did a metal detecting TV series or that was on. I think you can still see it on YouTube. I believe I saw it. Yeah, which Jace, was,
1: Jace Robertson is a uh, is a detectorist. He's got his own little series. He's sponsored by Garrett Metal Detectors. Does a wonderful job. But it's been going on for for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, I think uh, the, tr- the Curse of Oak Island it was was one of the biggies that right. that really started off. And a good friend of mine, Steve Zazulik from uh, Oakville, mm-hmm. was on on the first season and found the oldest pirate Coin in Canadian history on that show in 2002, 2003, hmm. and uh, you know a couple of years later, that show was joined by uh, uh, Gary Drayton from Florida, and he's been the metal detectorist on that show ever since, and uh, it, it's pretty cool. Right. Now,
0: now things uh, not uh, that long ago, within the last well, it'll be the last year, anyways. They found that very old gold coin in Newfoundland, but. Yeah. They didn't say how they found it. I don't know if they were using a metal detector or not, or was it something, or did you hear anything about that or know anything about that?
1: I can't speak onto that that specific incident. It, it doesn't ring any bells with me, but right. certainly it happens all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit tuned into that world, mm-hmm. and and when they're finding things 3 and 4 and 500 years old yep. um, and, and older um, in Europe, because Europe has... Some crazy history, you know, whether it be the UK or whatever. Yes. I recently traveled to Istanbul, Turkey, and uh, that was an amazing place and uh, full of history. And we're talking, I I'm stood in a building, uh, the Hagia Sophia, that was built in 422 AD. Mm. And it was in a better shape uh, than the Sky Dome downtown Toronto.
0: Yeah, it is amazing some of those things. And I know even things like the um, the cement used by the Romans is is it appears to be finally duplicated because it'd been lasting for the thousands of years that it'd been lasting. So those are the sorts of things that they kind of look in, try to figure out. But so when when you're dealing with these metal detectors underwater. Do they? How do they? They operate the same? And and they, they You mentioned eight feet for entry level ones, but this this thousand dollar one for uh, you can detect gold with it. Do, do they work very effectively underwater?
1: So the gold detectors would not be underwater detectors. Oh, they would not. Uh, not not per se. Not the the prospecting detectors would not be, but there are underwater detectors that certainly detect gold as well, because. There are two different things. When we're talking about gold, we're we're either talking pure gold that prospectors would be or gold manufactured products like rings and necklaces and watches and bracelets, which are completely different animals, right? Because, of course, they're mixed with alloys and such. But those types of things, any detector will detect 100% of the time. So the underwater detectors, you know, start at, um, you know three meters and four meters now and five meters okay. for for things that we would call submersible detectors. And then we go into underwater detectors, which okay. go up to 200 feet. Mm. And, and realistically there are very few, if no divers in, in Canadian waters that would go below 200 feet. They wouldn't be certified. They don't have the equipment to do that. So, so, but first snorkel is at 60, 70, 80 feet. Of course, uh, they can go down for their forty-five minutes or an hour at a time. Um, I think that uh, you probably know our good friend Brian um, from uh, from Oshawa. That that's a diver, and you know that's the type of thing that those guys would use for sure Right. in that two thousand dollars range.
0: Mm. So, and now, just like uh, if you're walking <clears throat> through a stream. Um, and you had the 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 gold detector it would not work in the stream at all.
1: The coils in the shafts would be waterproof. Okay. The control boxes would not be. Okay. Where on the waterproof IP68, the whole detector, including the control box, would be waterproof. You know, up to five years.
0: And now it's time for another testimonial for Chaga Health and Wellness.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, here we are in Lindsay with Bill, who's actually this gentleman has given blood over two hundred and thirty times. Two
2: hundred thirty-three. yeah. Two
0: hundred thirty-three, and that's amazing. And you've had some success with Chaga. Uh, tell us what you're dealing with and what you did, and uh, how you um, what you used. Well, I had mild uh, high blood per- mild. High blood pressure wasn't very really high, but I was on medication for a few years, right. and then I uh, quit drinking coffee and started drinking this tea—the uh, combination tea, the green and the chaga. Right. And uh, my medication is gone. Your my medication's blood, gone. Gone. And you couldn't give blood during the other times. Yeah, I could. Oh, you could. I could, yeah. Yeah. So. But uh, a few times uh, the machine kicked me out. Oh yeah so but now it doesn't anymore so you think uh the the green tea and the chaga was uh, helped uh, normalize your blood pressures oh yeah oh very because good because it wouldn't be just stopping coffee it would have to be something else too. and that's the only thing you did different yep well right. we're thank you very much for that and, and my blood pressure is probably that of a 40 year old man and i'm 71. oh very good <laughs> well that's good to hear thank you very much for that no problem okay we interrupt this program to bring you a special offer from Chaga health and wellness. If you've listened this far and you're still wondering about this strange mushroom that I keep talking about and whether you would benefit from it or not, I may have something of interest to you to thank you for listening to the show. I'm going to make trying Chaga that much easier by giving you a dollar off all our Chaga products at checkout. All you have to do is head over to our website, ChagaHealthAndWellness dot com. Place a few items in the cart and check out with the code Canopy, C A N O P Y. If you're new to Chaga, I'd highly recommend the regular Chaga tea. This comes with 15 tea bags per package, and each bag gives you around five or six cups of tea. Hey, thanks for listening. Back to the episode. So. How do people find places to to various places to to look and use these metal detectors?
1: Well, I think it starts with imagination, research and thought processes. So, I think a beach is a pretty common place and very easy to do. And then of course, we have parks and and you know lots and lots of people use parks for different reasons and in different ways. Mm -hmm. And some of them use it to play baseball or soccer or such. And there are people in stands that drop quarters and dollars and toonies and never be able you know, never find them again. There are people running around that drop things. There are people that have indiscreet or discreet affairs in bushes by trees that happen to lose rings and watches. And of course, if you think about history and you think about where buildings used to be. Right. And you, if you do your research at um, historical societies um, in, in smaller areas and you look at now, these are this is just farmland and say, hey, you know what? Uh, 150 years ago, there was a building there. Mm-hmm. And if you ask for permission to detect that property no differently than you would ask if you could goose hunt or deer hunt somebody's property
2: right.
1: and you gain permission for that private property and you compare it, you should be able to find where the corners of the buildings are due to nails and such that are, you know, have rotted into the ground. Mm -hmm. And then if you start doing grid searching away from that, you're going to find things. Now, you know, 200 years ago, when people didn't believe in banks, you'd be looking for a significant tree on that property.
2: Hmm.
1: And then, you know, there's the 100-year-old oak tree, and if I took seven, Faces towards the outhouse from that tree and dug a four foot hole and put my life treasure there. Nobody will ever find it. Right. Well, those people used to only live till thirty and forty years ago, hmm. or thirty or forty years old. Right. So if you did a grid patterns of, of those types of areas, it would that you would find all kinds of things. And people are doing it every day. I have a friend of mine that's on cougar ants on a field in southwestern Ontario. Oh, really? And. Uh, other types of things, people are finding them all the time. And not everything found is 1967 and newer. People are finding things from the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. Um, every day, all day, from April till October, November.
0: I can remember when I was, um, well, it would be over 60 years ago, let's say, as a, a youngin. where we used to live, there was a, a bank where it looked like this company used to throw all its old materials, and I'm talking old wagon wheels and all kind of stuff like that. And I always thought that that would be a spectacular place to be able to get somebody to go in with a metal detector. And I'm sure that there's probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of vehicles gone by this spot and never even thought of the idea of looking over that bank. But when I was a kid, I would go down there and roll these old wooden wagon deals, uh, wagon wheels, down in the side and look at them and everything else because I thought it was amazing and it was just looked like a big pile of junk in there. But probably by today's standards and with metal detecting, you might be able to find something of relevance.
1: I, I agree a hundred percent. And, and you know, even you know, you think of uh, how interesting <laughs> would it be to ethically detect Camp X? Of oh, yeah. course, these are protected areas now, but something like that. Then just up on, like up in Port McNichol, there was another very secretive, you know, a POW camp that we had there. And there's, there's, it's, it is about research and imagination and, and effort, right? And yep. not everybody wants to do the research and not everybody wants to make the effort, but the ones that do, um, you know, usually score the, the biggest finds. And as long as you're, you're doing it ethically, mm-hmm. restoring the earth to what you found, and perhaps finding something of historical significance that you make sure it's checked out by a museum or or such then then why not enjoy it
0: yeah i would think old maps if you could find old maps available as well because when i was young and uh, as well i used to love old maps and i've got all kind of old historic maps that that go back to 1800s and things like that that would be old sites where things took place then that are no longer there anymore
1: you know, absolutely. And then, you know, there are other people that break off and, and, and do types of things, uh, rock hounds. You know, there's all kinds of rock hounds and, of people out there that live in this world. And their thing may be meteorites. And, and it, you know, there's no better way to determine a, a meteorite than, than, than a metal detector as well.
0: So and I was just going to ask you about meteorites. And and when how do meteorites differ? How can you set your settings for meteorites?
1: Well, it's going to be an, uh, when, when you're detecting areas that, you know, that are wide open or, you know, certainly aren't uh, potentially full of trash. Mm-hmm. I, I would have my detector wide open and I would dig every single target. And, and, you know, you, you, I don't think you're going to discriminate towards a meteorite, maybe, maybe against it, but, you know, you're going over a rock and it's creating a crazy buzz mm-hmm. on your detector. Right. Uh, and then you have to use your, you know, your other senses to determine what that is and, and high likelihood of, you know, of it being a meteorite. Um, hot rocks are another thing that happened as well, right?
0: Well, yeah, because there's, there's some plates, I recall one is Meteorite Lake, that uh, I imagine it's called that because it was established as a result of a meteorite. But how would you get into a, a body of water like that to determine, and I don't know how deep it is, but I know of other spots that are not that deep, that uh, appear to be perfectly round in shape, and no reason for them to have that kind of configuration. That would be fairly shallow. That uh, chances are would be a meteorite somewhere in there.
1: Yeah, I, I don't disagree. And uh, again, research, interest, hobbies, and pe- people are creative.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So, so when what kind of tools do you need, Jack, in order to be able to? To be able, so you've got your metal detector, but what else do you need to carry with you or get when you start your in your metal detecting voyage
1: adventure? Yeah, sure. So uh, the metal detector being you know the base of it, 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 what we're going to do is be able to detect uh, an area or a target in an area, let's say the size of a dinner plate. You know, we have a nine-inch area here that we know that there's a target, and with a shovel. Whether it be a, a long shovel or a, a hand digging tool, you have the opportunity to make a real mess mm-hmm. if you're not if you're not careful with what you're doing. So, so what we do ethically, uh, we train people. We talk about big digging a plug. So you dig that plug around the size of the pie plate, and you know six to seven inches deep, and you pull it out as one piece.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we have something called a pinpointer, which is a small handheld metal detector. that kind of looks like a carrot for a, for lack of a better description. Right. And you move that around the plug itself mm-hmm. and within the hole to find that target within that space mm. without having to dig forever and ever and ever and ever. Right. And that itself will, will cut down your time and your lack of damage to that property as well. So once you've found that with your pinpointer and you've dug it with your shovel or your 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 hand digging tool mm-hmm. you flip the plug back over and you tamp it down nicely and nobody should ever know that you were in that spot so a pinpointer a must right. some type of a digging tool a sharp digging tool we have them with uh, serrated edges so they can nicely cut out uh, you know any plant roots or whatever without creating uh, you know any major damage right Um, a digging tool if you're in the forest, a hand tool if you're in a park, and maybe a little carry bag with you so you can have your finds in it, but also we have an ethical responsibility to remove the trash that is found and dispose of it properly rather than leaving the place worse than when you got it.
0: Mm. Actually, my son got me a it would be a pinpointer for Christmas, and it's uh, it's kind of like the size of like a, I don't know, more like a hand blender, if you know the type, What I'm referring to?
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and that's exactly what uh, that he picked me up, which was kind of interesting. I don't have a metal detector, but he thought it would be kind of neat to have one of these. So I've got yeah. part of the tools. What kind of what kind of price range do pinpointers uh, run at, Jack?
1: They run from a one hundred to two hundred dollars. Okay. And, you know, I think at the low end, you're getting something that does a, a basic job, you know, uh, it works fine, no troubles at all. And as you get, um, a little bit more expensive up to, I think the top end of that is $199, $189. You're getting something with an LED display. You, you have adjustable, um, uh, tones, uh, Bluetooth enabled for a headset, mm. uh, adjustable sensitivity in it. And, uh, you know, just. A little bit easier to use built-in batteries, perhaps rechargeable lithium-ion batteries, things like that.
2: Okay.
0: So, and uh, on these these, I'm assuming that all the metal detectors run on batteries, and because you mentioned some, um, what was it, AAA batteries? I think for the the yep. kids' entry level ones. How long would a, a battery charge last on, say, um, the, uh, the the mid-range one? I think would. You mentioned four dollars to $800 ones that would uh, you be able to, would that be enough to do a, like I I don't know, five acre park sort of thing, or how long would the batteries last?
1: Well, again, uh, space has got to do with time because I don't think you're going to knock a five acre park off in a day for sure. Um, maybe, maybe a week, but today's technology that the, the higher mid to high end units are all using lithium ion batteries, rechargeable batteries. So those are the best compositions, the longest-lasting. So from a full charge, you're going to be able to bring it down to within you know, 5% of capacity where you know older technology, uh, NICADs or nickel metahydrates, 50% capacity, and they're done, right? So mm-hmm. the, the lithium-ion battery is much better, faster charging, lighter weight, um, better performance. And I'd be thinking that you should get the best part of a weekend— out of a charge. Oh, okay. However, you know, I mean, if you're putting six, seven, eight, nine, ten hours in a day and you have a, a good use and you plan to go in tomorrow, you're going to eat somewhere and you're going to sleep somewhere. So make sure that you either have an ability to charge it, with a, you know, just like you would with your telephone, or you have a spare battery that you can just pop in and and go for the next day. Triple um, A's uh, in the lower end detectors, uh, you know, mid to low end detectors are also pretty good. And those are really easy to change out, whether it be three or four triple A's or double A's. Let me say double A's. Right. Um, you you know, you carry those out. People that have detectors like that usually do a Costco buy of 487 batteries and that lasts <laughs> in that last a year, Right.
2: Right.
0: So the, these lithium ones, how big is it, is it a pack? Is it, a, is it specific to the to the, um, the metal detector itself? Or is it uh, just lithium ones that you, you can buy in a regular store?
1: Yeah. These are built in because of the need for these batteries or these units to be completely submersible. Right. These are built in proprietary packs that are within the sealed housing because, of course, we, we need to ensure that we do not have any ingress of water that is going to lead to shorts or corrosion.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're built-in packs, and, and usually you can pick up a spare one for for your, your device where, wherever you is, acquire there it is,
1: There is one brand that has built-in an accessory port in the handle that you can buy a second battery and use that as a backup. Very, uh, very ingenious, uh, really, really thought after um, application for it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but not all companies have that. Not all detectors have that. But the ones that, you know, the more serious detectors do have that ability to buy an extra battery pack for 60, 70 dollars and pop it into the top of the handle. And so they'll have twice as much runtime. Um, you know, between charges.
0: Okay. So now you mentioned a prospecting one. We, we did do a podcast with the, the Ontario prospectors association. Is this something that a lot of prospectors would be using now that, that technology that that you're aware of?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The the, the amount of business that we do in gold prospecting detectors, Mm -hmm. is mind blowing. um, So of course, we have a huge industry for for gold in Canada, right albeit a lot of it uh, is you know, whether it be the uh, bring a fire in Ontario or otherwise. It's a different type of mining mm-hmm. um, where they have to crush the rock to get the powder gold out and, and extract it. But there are areas that have bigger chunks, especially you know, in the, in the Yukon and Northwest Territories, Northern BC. So we see a lot of action in through that areas as well. And they have much more accessible ribbons of gold in Africa,
2: mm-hmm.
1: in South America, and in Australia. Okay. And the, the number of people that uh, buy detectors in-country here and travel with them for gold prospecting alone, in those countries, also amazes me. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, I, I certainly always recommend people check the local laws and, and do their research before they do that. Right. But whether it be coin and treasure or prospecting, uh, either way, if you're going to take it outside of Canada, the laws, you know, could be different. And uh, right, buy everywhere.
0: When we did the uh, prospecting uh, podcast. The big thing that they were saying now is with all these electric vehicles coming out, that lithium was the, the biggest thing that they were looking for everywhere because the deposits, the main deposits that are in the world now, as I, I believe were expressed, were only in third-world countries. So they were looking for stable countries. So what kind of metals would the detectors actually find?
1: Well, any any and all metals. Any and all metals that are going to react to a magnetic field. Okay. Now, identifying what that metal is is a completely different process. Mm -hmm. So um, nowadays, there are other technologies, uh, typically ground penetrating radar that they would use. I mean, it's well beyond my my understanding and expertise, but I believe that they have massive antennas that they fly below helicopters over regions, vast regions that can see you know hundreds of feet into the into the uh terrain to try and predict what metals are below Mm -hmm. so it's not like we're seeing on the 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 gold tv shows where they have to you know dig up and look and and hope for the best you know they have certainly the uh, biggest companies in the world are using advanced technologies to to determine or Try and narrow down where those are right Geolo- geological studies and and geological scientists and all that are are way smarter than me and you
0: <laughs> yes I, I have a number of uh, i've had a prospecting license for over twenty five years and certainly have seen a lot of those geological maps that they talk about that uh, look very very unique in the formations of all the soil and the 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 rock configurations there and it looks it looks amazing and one of the places you can see a lot of that stuff on is the the um Ontario Ministry of Northern Development and Mines and the mine site gives you a bit of a breakdown on all those those maps and gives you vein runs. I know one of my friends actually <clears throat> they were looking for the gold vein that was out of Timmins and running west about an hour and a half or so west of Timmins that they were following this, what they anticipated was a potential vein that uh, they were looking at. But those are other things and other methods that uh, don't fall into the, the handheld metal detectors.
1: That's for sure. And I think there's another vein similar to that in the Medoc region.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's so a, quite extensive. Being a,
1: being a prospector uh, for that many years, do you ever go down to the uh, Uh, The convention, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada convention.
0: In March in Toronto.
1: Yes. Yep. So the whole gold world really emanates out of Canada. Yep. All the biggest miners, commercial miners in the world. But this show is is pretty interesting. And uh, it has guys like me and you there right up to, you know, the the biggest and best of the best. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting, interesting
0: show. Yeah, it is. It very much so. And actually, I believe the Toronto Stock Exchange originally f- was founded as a mining exchange because of the amount of minerals that were being traded in those areas in Ontario, and that's how it's got its its original start.
1: Yeah, wow, I didn't know that.
0: Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, quite fascinating that the the that whole industry as a whole, and it's certainly developing substantially, and with the demands in the world and with the electric vehicles. Now they're certainly looking in trying to get more people into that industry. So there's a bit of a surge right now with prospectors in Ontario trying to figure those aspects. Now, Jack, a lot of people, you mentioned about flying because a lot of people take a lot of these metal detectors with them. Once they figure out uh, the rules and regulations in the countries they go to.
1: Absolutely. I mean, every day, I'm on a bunch of uh, user groups uh, around metal detecting, and people say, "Hey, I'm going to Cuba. Is there any concerns taking metal detectors?" And people with firsthand experience give those replies, whether it be the, the DR or any of those things. I have a, a good friend of mine that makes, uh, I would say uh, pretty good living. Um, certainly, his fines per year, Dwarfs his civic employee salary. Oh, <laughs> and he targets certain resorts. Right in the Caribbean, four times a year. Oh, and you know, funny enough, he books resorts either in or next to resorts that are very well established with. Eastern European customers. Mm. And the explanation is these are the people that wear big, heavy, gaudy gold jewelry. Mm -hmm. And he says, you never want to get caught and you never want to find anything while they're there. He says, but I'm in at nighttime and I'm in right after. And some of the pieces that he has found and, and he publishes them, you know, sometimes a year or two or three later are staggering. And, and, Tens of thousands of dollars. Um, like he's he's certainly recovering in the between watches and rings and bracelets and such necklaces, uh, six digits, small six digits a year.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I imagine. Yeah, that's. Uh, it was surprising when I was in Egypt. The um, it was basically it was kind of surprising that, and it was a lot of Eastern European country. Um, vacationers that were there, but six o'clock came and basically the ocean was shut down. Nobody went in the water. Nobody was down at the water. There was none of the uh, services available um, where we were on the, uh, the red sea. And it was just kind of like, where is everybody at six o'clock? And yeah. So, well, nobody goes in the water after six o'clock. And I was just, Oh, what? Okay. But I guess uh, different cultures uh, takes a bit to understand, and those would be the places that you'd find a lot of that stuff. Obviously,
1: uh, I would think so. I certainly might might be cautious of being the lone wolf on the beach because, of course, there are uh, you know, locals that understand exactly what you're doing, right. and uh, you know may not be friendly. Right? It may not. They may not believe that you didn't find anything. Oh yeah. Hmm. So. Yeah, no, it it is certainly interesting, and uh, we see it all the time. As a matter of fact, England uh, it has made it. Uh, There's a business, a hobby business that that gather people and take them on hunts. Um, it's pretty, pretty, very, very popular, and it's the rules there are much different. Where you can go on a hunt with permission. Now it's paid permissions. They're paying right. farmers to hunt their <clears throat> land, but these are organized uh, trips. And you go, and uh, but what you find, you have to turn over to the historical society, and it sits, it gets evaluated, and they'll tell you whether they want that piece for a museum or not. Mm. If they do, they say, hey, you know what, this is worth $15,000, and we want it for the museum. They will compensate you for that. And if not, they'll say, hey, it's worth $15,000, but we don't need it. We have three already, then you, you get to claim it, you know six months later or a year later or whatever that is.
2: Right.
0: Well, so That's
1: kind of interesting the way they do that as well. Yeah.
0: So essentially what does somebody need to do, Jack, to, to get started in in the, the handheld metal detecting prospecting um, hobby?
1: My suggestion would be to jump in the car and come visit us at Radio World or look at our website, RadioWorld.ca. Okay. Look under metal detectors. Do a little bit of research phone us, have a conversation with one of our experienced people on the phone and and understand we have uh, user groups. uh, If you're on Facebook, the Toronto Metal Detecting Club is a club that I manage. Uh, We have, I don't know, uh, a thousand members, wonderful people, very sharing group to ask questions, experiences. We have big events that we host usually every spring at Woodbine Beach Park. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, YouTube is full of metal detector videos, uh, TikTok nowadays, uh, whatever the case may be, but, uh, you know, have fun, enjoy it. It's a hobby. Um, if you think you're interested in it, then, then do a little research. It's winter. Everything's going to be frozen for another three months. There is lots and lots of time to watch videos and to talk to people.
0: All right, Jack. Now, you mentioned, but just how do people get in touch with you to, if they want more information? Again, you mentioned a bit of it, but if you could yeah. just kind of give us a, an overview again of how they can reach out and talk to you and get more expertise.
1: Absolutely. So they can start off by looking on the website at radioworld.ca, or they could visit the store at Radioworld at Highway 400 and steels. Uh, those are the best two ways, and we have a whole bunch of people here at the store that is happy to talk metal detecting as long as you need it and give you all of the best information.
0: Well, thanks very much for being on the podcast, Jack. We very much appreciate it. And we hope that uh, you, uh, you know, you get a chance to, to get out and, and spend some time. Obviously, if you're part of this large club in Toronto, you must have some time to, to manage this uh, this this metal detecting club you mentioned that uh, you must be able to enjoy it out there.
1: I sure do. I, I'm a people person and I, I really enjoy interacting with others. And Thank you, Jerry. Really great to talk to you today and uh, good luck. And uh, we love your bo- your podcast.
0: Thanks very much, Jack. Very much appreciate that. Have a great day. Yourself as well. Take and, care. Yeah, now that's Jack. And we certainly learned a lot about, metal detecting and that industry as a whole and the options that are out there and it's just another way that you can enjoy your time in the outdoors and under the canopy.
1: everybody i'm angelo viola and i'm pete bowman now you might know us as the
0: hosts of canada's favorite fishing show but now we're hosting a podcast that's right every thursday Anne and i'll be right here in your ears bringing you a brand new episode of
1: outdoor journal radio hmm. now what are we going to talk about for two hours every week
0: well you know
1: there's going to be a lot of fishing i knew exactly where those fish were going to be and how to catch them and they were easy to catch yeah, but it's not just a fishing show. We're going to be talking to people from
0: all facets of the outdoors. From athletes.
1: All the other guys would go golfing. Me and Garth and Turk. And all the Russians would go fishing. To scientists. But now that we're reforesting and letting free, it's the perfect transmission environment for life to be. To chefs. If any game isn't cooked properly, marinated, for, you will taste it. And whoever else will pick up the phone. Wherever you
0: are, Outdoor Journal Radio seeks to answer the questions and tell the stories of all those who enjoy being outside. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
1: podcasts. How did a small-town sheet metal mechanic come to build one of Canada's most iconic fishing lodges? I'm your host, Steve Nitzwicky, and you'll find out about that and a whole lot more on the Outdoor Journal Radio Network's newest podcast, Diaries of a Lodge Owner. But this podcast will be more than that. Every week on Diaries of a Lodge Owner, I'm going to introduce you to a ton of great people, share their stories of our trials, tribulations, and inspirations, learn and have plenty of laughs along the way. Meanwhile, we're sitting there bobbing along, trying to figure out how to catch a bass. And we both decided one day we were going to be on television doing a fishing show. My hands get sore a little bit when I'm reeling in all those bass in the summertime, but that's might be for more fishing than it was punching. You so confidently, you said, hey, Pat, Have you ever eaten a truck? Find Diaries of a Lodge owner now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.